The gardener said, sir, let it alone for just one more year until I can dig around it and put some manure on it. Until I can put some manure on it. Would you all please pray with me? May the words in my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was really, really cold in the middle of February as we lugged our recording equipment up to the arena in St. Louis, Missouri. Some friends and I, some pastors, we had hoodwinked the powers that be that we were a reputable media organization. That we wanted to come and document what was happening at the recent general conference. And they had happily, if not ignorantly, provided us with press passes. So there we were in St. Louis. We parked as close as we could, but we still had to lug all of our equipment over to the side entrance to get to the press area on top of everything. And we were all shivering. It was so cold and we had not packed the right clothing. We were waiting for the light to change in this sparsely populated downtown area of St. Louis. And over chattering teeth, we opened about who and what what we might encounter at General Conference. We wondered about what kind of vote was going to happen. We were even wondering if they weren't going to let us in. But by the time the arena came to view, none of us were talking. And it wasn't because it was cold. It was because we were gobsmacked by the presence of representatives from the Westboro Baptist Church who were picketing um, the responding to the called General Conference. Do you all know who the Westboro Baptist Church are? They're the people who are forever gathering outside of funerals and uh, organizations and meetings. And they have these big, big plastic signs and they're screaming in their megaphones. They seem to be upset about everything all the time. And so here we were. Our denomination, the United Methodist Church, was meeting to discern the future for LGBTQIA inclusion or exclusion. And mere feet away from the main entrance were a handful of demonstrators who, by their, shine, their signs and their shouting, were letting everyone know how they felt about the whole thing. So I saw the first sign. No women preachers. No women preachers. I thought, these people are going to be real disappointed when they open up the Gospels and they see that women preachers were the first to tell all the men about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. The next sign. Divorce, remarriage, gay marriage are all sin. Divorce, remarriage, and gay marriage are all sin. I thought, you know, they're not necessarily wrong, but so is eating shellfish and getting a tattoo and working on the Sabbath. So I guess we're all in trouble then. The next one, believe on Jesus, the destroyer of Sodom and Gomorrah. Believe on Jesus, the destroyer of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I thought, wait a minute, what Bible are they reading? Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed in the book of Genesis. That's a thousand years before Jesus was born. Ah, I want to read that Bible. The next one. Your pastors are liars. Yep. That's true. That's true. Next one. America is doomed. I thought, man, maybe they're onto something over here. And the last sign. God hates figs. God hates figs. Now, friends, it was cold outside. I was shaking, but I started laughing right there in the middle of the street. It was probably the funniest thing I've ever seen. God hates figs. These people really do read their Bibles. You know, Jesus rebukes a fig tree and he curses it to never grow fruit again. 
Jesus tells a parable about a fig tree, and the owner can't stand that it's not growing, so he orders it to be teared down. And so I entertain the thought for a brief moment of crossing the line to the dark side to go congratulate these protesters for their astute reading of God's holy word. I mean, I had problems with some of the things on their signs. I could have pulled out my Bible and showed them chapter and verse to contradict what they were saying. But, I mean, God hates figs? How can you argue with that? It was only as we got closer, and the yelling through the megaphones became louder and louder, did I read and realize that I misread the sign. Because yes. it didn't say God hates figs. It said God hates fags. A man had a vineyard. In the vineyard, he planted a tree. A fig tree. For three years, he would wander out into his field. His field of grapes to check on this standalone fig tree. Only to return to the chateau every evening empty-handed. And so one day he says to the gardener, Hey, I can't take this fig tree anymore. I've been waiting three years for figs. It is wasting the soil. I want you to cut it down right now. And the gardener looks at his employer, looks at the vineyard owner, and says, Lord, let it be. Give it one more year. I'll spread some manure on it later. I'll mix up the soil. And if it bears fruit next year, awesome. But if it doesn't, then you can do with it whatever you want. It's short and sweet, as parables are concerned. Unlike my parable of walking to the entrance of General Conference, this little parable doesn't have superfluous details. There's nothing in it to distract the listener from what the story is saying. The main thing stays the main thing. And yet, even for all of its simplicity, for all of its brevity, there are a lot of weird and notable details in this little parable. There are so many, in fact, that I preached on this exact passage three months ago, and there's still more to say about it. There's so much more to say about it that I had to look up my sermon from three months ago because I couldn't even remember what I said about it. That's the enduring and the endearing beauty of God's word. It is a never-ending mine from which we can return and glean again and again and again. But back to the story. Why does the vineyard owner plant a fig tree among all his grapes? And don't you think he would be worried about an outside plant vying for the nutrients in the ground? Or maybe, maybe he was a sucker for a dried fig every once in a while. Or what if? What if he was planning to start the first Fig Newton distribution business in Jerusalem? We don't know. All we know is that the owner of the vineyard delighted in planting a fig tree among all his grapes. Maybe it's a sign to us that God, as the vineyard owner, rejoices in us, his fig tree, but that we are also not his main concern. We are not God's bread and butter. If that's true, it's all good and well, but it has the rotten luck of showing all of us how we are not nearly as important as we think we are. But there are more details, like the gardener. In terms of storytelling, it is notable that the gardener, not the vineyard owner, is the one who shows grace to the fig tree. There's... Jesus could have told a very different version of the story in which the vineyard owner himself offers grace to the fig tree among all the grapevines. But that's not the story Jesus tells. Instead, it is the owner who cannot stand to wait any longer, has no more patience for this fig tree. He wants to tear the thing down. It's the gardener. It's the gardener who speaks on behalf of the speechless tree. What does the gardener say? Sir, let it alone for one more year. Let me dig around and put some manure on it. At least that's what it says in our pew Bibles. 
You know what it says in Greek? It says Kyrie, office, autum. Kyrie, office, autum. Literally, Lord, forgive it. Not let it alone for one more year. Literally, Lord, forgive it. Does that sound familiar at all? From the arms of the cross, Lord, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Lord, forgive it. Lord, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. I think these might be some of the most striking words from the entirety of the Bible. Because they proclaim the apparent forgiveness of the Lord for no reason at all, and because they help us see how little we can see. It was three years ago this week at a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. They were hosting Latin night. There were 300 people dancing on the dance floor when the announcement went out for last call at around 2 a.m. And the crowds gathered at the bar to get their final drink of the evening and a man walked in and started shooting. There was an initial barrage of gunfire. There was a hostage situation that happened in one of the bathrooms. And eventually a SWAT team had to blow a hole in the wall, run in and kill the shooter. By the end, 50 were dead, including the shooter. And another 53 were in the hospital. At the time, it was the deadliest mass shooting by a single shooter in U.S. history. Only to be eclipsed one year later by the Las Vegas shooter. But still to this day, it remains the deadliest incidence of violence against LGBTQ people in the history of the United States of America. And what makes it all the more tragic is that this is nothing new for an entire community of people. Did you know that nearly a quarter of all of the hate crimes that happen in our country happen to gay people? Nearly a quarter. And the number of incidents have increased every single year since 2005. Many of those perpetrating violence against the LGBTQ community, they regularly cite it was their religious convictions that defend their actions. Just this week, like two days ago, a sheriff's deputy in Tennessee implored the members of his church to call upon the federal government to begin rounding up and executing gay people in our country. Sometimes it takes decades of a preacher belittling and ridiculing people for their sexual orientation. Sometimes all it takes is seeing a protester with a sign that have three horrible words on them. And someone can go and attack two men walking down the street hand in hand. Or someone can walk into a nightclub and shoot into the darkness because women were dancing with women and men were dancing with men. Sometimes all it takes is a sentence in a book about the incompatibility of someone that becomes a shackle around the ankle of a church. A shackle that it is forced to carry on and on and on. Jesus' parable, there are only two characters in it. And they're vividly painted. There's the vineyard owner who's God the Father, and there's the gardener who's God the Son. The gardener, as Christ, invites the owner of the vineyard into forgiving the fig tree and to live according to grace. His words here, as I've already said, they're the very same words that he says from the cross. The same gospel writer, Luke, tells this story about the fig tree and uses the same words to tell what Jesus says from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they have no idea what they're doing. If we're honest with ourselves, those words haunt us. Because all of us, whether we like it or not, we are living in the reign of forgiveness. 
a forgiveness we do not deserve. And yet, the world usually thinks and is hell-bent on acting otherwise. The world thinks it lives and spins by merit and reward and violence and oppression. The world produces people who can wave signs and sing slogans that at times result in people being buried in the ground because of nothing else than who they love. The world, the world likes to imagine that salvation comes from a God who rewards individuals for their righteousness, whether it's biblical or not. But the foolishness of God is wiser than that. The foolishness of a God who mounts the hard wood of the cross is smarter than that. The cross, the thing we adorn our sanctuary with, in all of its ugliness, it is a sign and a testament to us that Jesus became sin for us. That Jesus went outside the boundaries of respectability for us. That Jesus is damned to the dump for us. That he ultimately becomes the manure of grace for us. I don't think there's anything more striking in this story than the fact that the gardener offers to dump manure all over the fig tree. That Jesus says, hey God, I will drop manure over all these people. Only in the foolishness of God could something so nasty, so dirty, so grossly inappropriate become the means by which we are saved. It is the horrific nature of the cross, Jesus' profound death for all eyes to see from which Jesus returns to us. And he is marked in his return by the grave and by the cross. He comes to us with holes in his hands and in his feet. Bringing all of the nutrients we could ever need in the soil of our souls. And Jesus doesn't wait around for us to start bearing fruit before he brings manure. He brings manure because we have no fruit. He doesn't wait until we master the art of morality. He shows up and he dumps the dung right on top of us. Jesus doesn't give a flip whether we've got a fig on our tree or not. He only cares about forgiveness. A forgiveness we so desperately need because, friends, we have no idea what we're doing. If we had any idea what we were doing, we would have solved all of the world's problems by now. We wouldn't have to worry about a young girl being ostracized in middle school because she dressed like a boy. We wouldn't have to worry about the safety of people dancing in a nightclub simply because of who they might be dancing with. We wouldn't have to worry about a young person thinking about ending their life because what a preacher said in a sermon about who they are and who they love. But we have to worry about these things. We must worry about these things because this is the world we live in. We turn on the news Reluctantly knowing that we are not going to be bombarded with all the good stuff that's happening, but we're going to see all the devastating stuff. We see images of violence so often that we become numb to how broken the world is. We can hear people shouting from the streets of life about what they believe, and we can walk by idly without thinking at all about the repercussions of what they're saying. You and me, we are a fruitless fig tree standing alone in the middle of God's garden. We are doing nothing. And we deserve a whole lot of nothing. And yet, and yet the gardener sees us in all that we are and says, Lord, forgive it. Give me another try. Jesus looks at our barren limbs He's how fruitless we are, and he is moved by three words. Not the three words on the sign the man held, but three far more important words. 
Lord, forgive it. That's why we come to the table. We come to the table again and again, knowing that this simple meal is anything but simple. It is, believe it or not, the manure we need. It is, believe it or not, our very forgiveness. A forgiveness we need because we have no idea what we're doing. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen.